way we grow and produce food is ever-changing, shaped by consumers and the climate in which we live and farm. Research at all points of our food system is essential for continuously improving food's journey from farm to table. The Manitoba Agriculture and Food Knowledge Exchange explores timely research innovations and applications that make our food system better than ever. Join us for today's podcast. Welcome to the Manitoba Agriculture and Food Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm Jordan Sasiwa, and today we've got one of those topics that, as somebody that eats a lot of food and is always looking for the 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 next way to use a product, we've got something exciting for today's topic. We're adding value to Canada's most important crop, and that's canola. And that might sound like an overstatement to say most valuable crop, but when we get through with this podcast, you're going to see why we're saying that. We've got an expert in the field with more than 20 years plant breeding experience. We've got Rob Duncan, and Rob is an associate professor in the Department of Plant Science at the University of Manitoba, and he calls himself a canola and rapeseed breeder at the U of M. Frankly, this is going to be a fun discussion. Rob, let's jump right into this. What are you currently researching? Thanks, Jordan. Uh, Happy to be here and I appreciate your time. One of the topics that we're currently focusing on, among others, but one of them is really adding value to canola production in in Canada. In Canada, we produce over 20 million acres of, of canola. And the reason I say we're adding value to it is about 20 to 22% of the seed of the canola that's produced is composed of protein or plant proteins. And I'm sure you've heard tons about plant proteins and plant proteins in your diet. And often in canola or historically, this protein has been viewed as a byproduct. And often it's been relegated to be used just as animal feed. Uh, But because of that immense production that we have in, in Canada, there's a huge opportunity to add value to the seed component, to the entire canola industry, to expand the market for plant proteins, and uh, possibly even bring this canola protein into use for human consumption. And so this is the this is what's exciting to me is is yes, I've actually heard of the of the the protein from canola uh, being utilized as a as a feed source, um, which is fantastic because it's it's. You know, it's using a, a a product, and and feeding cattle and and cutting down a lot of of um, excess waste that way. On the the cows are removing it so that we as humans don't just remove a waste product. It's being consumed. But talking about this, and you know, I, I'm fortunate. I've been hanging around the uh, faculty of agricultural and food sciences for a while, so I know that quality of protein is is key when talking about human consumption so what kind of quality does canola have for protein so overall canola has uh the proteins in canola have a well-balanced amino acid profile and normally uh usually for human food consumption um soybean protein is is what is often often used so i would describe that as the main competitor for uh, canola proteins As I say, canola protein does have a well-balanced amino acid profile, um, but there are improvements that that can be made, both in the quantity of the protein as well as the quality. And that's where me as a plant breeder and and the 
group that I work with in the Department of Plant Science really has that opportunity to improve that quantity and that quality. And so what are you doing to accomplish that? Because that, that, that actually sounds very interesting from a, from a genetic standpoint, or we're talking breeding on that, I guess. Yeah, so I guess the, the main things that we would be, be doing in that case are, um, number one, you want to utilize the natural variation that's out there for either, uh, and again, there's kind of two topics of the quantity is, is one topic, the quality of the protein is another topic. But one of the first things you do in plant breeding is evaluate the natural variation that's out there in, in the germplasm related brassica species, uh, different oil oil types of, of uh, canola or rapeseed, and try to find the traits in that natural variation that you desire. So whether that's high protein or low protein, whatever your target is, you want to examine that natural variation. Once you've then examined that natural variation and maybe found some variants or mutants that you might find useful to breed a target, then you can use those those uh, variants in in your breeding, but also use them to find out what genes are involved in controlling that particular trait. Interesting, because so I'm a proud Manitoban, and I think this is something that uh, more Manitobans need to know: is canola was created in Manitoba, and and c can you speak to that a little more? Because when I hear that, I'm thinking like, how how did we create a plant species? But but this is this is genetic modification, I guess, to its best point. I wouldn't call it in, in some, depending upon how you define modification, it, it could be. There's no doubt that humans have, have modi modified it. Um, it wouldn't be, that wouldn't fall under the tradition, what, what people would, would term right now a genetically modified organism. Per, per se under the under the media's definition or the or the general public's definition but there's no doubt that humans took brassica napus and found variants of it that had low glucosinolates that was one of the components that canola um, utilizes a low glucosinolate compound and then one that also had lower rusic acid levels and basically they took those two variants similar to my story that i was describing before of finding that natural variation and then combining those those traits in of low glucosinolates and low erucic acid in one single genotype and so that's how it's the same species but all they did was use that natural variation to make uh some progress in any one desired direction and that's I was going to say, let's define that because I, I love where you're going with this because as somebody that finds themselves in a lot of health and wellness discussions, and I, like, I know that this now could open up a, we need seven hours to go over this, but <laughs> from that genetic, genetically modified conversation, this is something that I learned a long time ago and quickly and early in my career is that their genetic modification as somebody like yourself would look at it just meant you found qualities in the natural occurring plants and you you introduced them just like um you know what i've got a newborn baby so my wife and i uh our genetics we introduced new genetics together to make a brand new baby and that baby so never seen before so that's similar i think right 
I agree. I, I personally, I do not like the term GMO at all. And to me, what I would, what, what the public or, or some parts of the public or, or what somebody might be against it would be a better term for that would be transgenic. So that means that they've brought in a gene from another species, whatever that species is, and they've brought it in uh, maybe through a non-traditional manner. Whereas to, so that's what I, I would prefer the term transgenic is used rather than genetically modified, GMO, genetically modified organism, because in my mind, in a, in a simple English definition, it's very hard for any of us to find any food that we have, that humans haven't modified for 10,000 plus years, yeah. going back all the way to maybe selecting the fruit that, that lasted longer or something that matured before the frost came in in September or October. So humans have been modifying their food but through selection for thousands and thousands of years. And so really the, the development of canola and the first, you're right, the first uh, cultivar was registered in 1974 out of the breeding program at, at the University of Manitoba. And, and that was just through selection and recombination and essentially the, the glucosinolate content and fatty acid profile were, were modified. Oh, I love it. I love it because I'm a proud Manitoban and I actually had it explained to me by the Canola Growers Association what they had done. And, and just like you said, it was selecting the, the the breeds that would give us the best oils and the best end product that we need. And now this is where you come in is because all I want or all I thought I wanted was the oils. Um, but now let's let's talk about the focus on the protein related traits and because this is where you're going with it and uh, i'm sort of throwing that genetic modification thing on you that uh that's a can of worms <laughs> to, to cover no, I'm, I'm actually happy to have the opportunity to to cover it because I, I really feel it's unfortunate i think in mainstream media but even even scientists seem to use the word gmo and and i really think it's a it's not an uh uh good use of terminology to describe it. And I think often, as I say, what people are maybe against or think they're against is the idea of a transgenic crop, bringing a, a gene in from another species. And so you're, I'm happy to, happy to discuss it. And it does tie into what we're doing uh, very well here. Because I, if I can just add one more thing, George. Absolutely. So, so in, in the 70s, um, normal commodity canola was, was developed. And I, and I bring this topic up because it's going to tie into what we're doing. But but since then, and even in the 80s and then 90s, and, and this was another U of M uh, major contribution, was the development of specialty oil canola, uh, canola. So that was something that has high oleic acid or low linolenic acid. And that's turned into a big proportion of the market. So we really, st today, farmers will either be growing specialty oil canola or just kind of co commodity canola oil. And the reason I mentioned that up is what we're, we're going to talk about here in terms of protein related traits. I do feel there's a, a huge opportunity for specialty protein canola moving forward. Well, and let, let's talk about that because this is something that uh, like, I, I've, I've heard the whisperings just because I'm somebody that uh, the, the plant-based protein side of things has fascinated for me for years. Um, you know, I, I train high-performing athletes and their need for complete proteins 
and protein sources, but also always looking for, for different areas to get them. Uh, I'm going to let you just kind of go out there with, with what's going on with the, the protein side of it. Okay. Okay. So when I'm talking about uh, protein or protein related traits, as I mentioned earlier, I'm really talking about several things, just grouping them under that protein related term, but we can be talking about quantity. So there would be benefits to simply increasing the amount of, of protein. Um, but I'm also talking about quality. So, and when I say quality, I'm talking about uh, different types of the actual different types of seed storage proteins that make up the total protein within in the seed. And in canola, there's two main storage protein types and they're called cruciferin and, and napin. But what's so exciting about this field is that at this, because all the effort in the past had gone into lowering glucosinolates, um, the fatty acid profile, decreasing erucic acid or increasing oleic acid uh, and or increasing oil content, most of the research over the previous decades has focused on those traits and little to no effort has gone into the protein side of things, mainly because it was viewed as a byproduct. It was a byproduct of, of the oil crush. But, but I really feel that because of the emphasis that our society and uh, some of our, our diets are, are requiring in terms of plant-based proteins, we really have an opportunity to turn that byproduct into a co-product. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, I'll maybe leave it at that. Well, and, and I guess this was the other thing too, is, is when we discovered that we could use it as animal feed, that also kind of, you know, what further, what further research do we need? We've got the byproduct, but we can feed it to our cattle. So let's leave it there. But now people like yourself have come along and said, wait, with a few changes, this can be human consumable. So I'll give you a few examples. So in the seed, if you were to take a sample from, from the combine or the truck going to the elevator, Canadian canola usually averages around 20% protein. It fluctuates upon, based upon the year. Yeah. So that's, uh, in, in the seed, it's about 20% protein. Um, and then when the seed is crushed for, for the oil, uh, and it goes through the, the processing process, it, it's heated and and things degrade the protein. But in, in the resulting meal after that oil crush, you're anywhere from 36 to 38% protein left in that meal. And in um, one of the main competitors would be soybean meal, as I mentioned before, and it's, it's a fair bit, fair bit higher. And so immediately canola proteins at, at a disadvantage. Um, so there's, there's really large opportunity to increase that seed or meal protein content and add value to canola overall. The, the challenge in doing that, Jordan, is that there is a relationship between oil content and protein content. There, as, as the main product has been oil from the, from the crush, um, yeah. you can't, in, there's a, a negative correlation between the two. And if you increase protein content, you could have a negative impact on oil content but there is that opportunity to maintain the oil at an acceptable level and yet increase the protein content and and as an example in our program we have genotypes that rather than that 20 22 percent protein content in the seed we have genotypes that are well over 30 percent protein so it's a big big bump up 
Now, when you when you hit that thirty percent, what does happen to the the oil content? Because that I guess that the, the conversation here is that Canadians should know is is canola produces a huge amount of money for our country as a, as an export, as well as we use it. A, a lot of people uh, use it more than they would even have any inclination that they use it in their daily baking, cooking, etc. It, it's it's a huge product for Canada. So if you do jump to that 30%, what does that do to the, to the oil content? Good, good question. If you get into the 34, 35% protein range in the seed, there's no doubt oil takes, takes a big hit. Though I, I do think there is an opportunity to have something that has oil content in the high 40s, 48, 49, maybe even 50% of the seed, and still have protein in that range of of uh, the high 20s, 28%, which, which is still a big jump up from that only 20% average. Yeah, I think you need to get more excited about this because as somebody that, from an economic standpoint, hearing what you're describing is all of a sudden canola adds value to the plant-based uh, boom that's going on, has the oil content to continue that side of it, you're just giving an upside and and letting growers use the same crop or the field volumes, but now adding a significant income source. That's, man, that's sure. fantastic research. And that's what's so exciting about it. And that's just one of the topics. That's just on the quantity side of things. Wow. On the quality side of things, there's um, a very similar situation where there's an excellent opportunity to focus in on those two main storage protein types that I mentioned before of, say, increasing cruciferin content or increasing the napin content. And so that's what I, that to me is a really good analogy to the, um, to the specialty oil canola types. These could be specialty protein types. So for, for example, um, in, in uh, kind of a standard or an average brassica napis or canola plant, cruciferin content is around around 60%, and napin content is around 20% of the seed protein content. And two of my graduate students, Ashley Amateur doing her master's and Kenny So doing their PhD, are actually looking at the natural diversity of the cruciferin content and napin content in the brassica germplasm. And we're starting to see significant variation for, for these traits. And the reason why this is important is cruciferin and napin have different functional properties in, in foods. And I can give you some examples of those, but it, it could lead to potential as extra, extracts, protein extracts, or isolates that could be used in a wide range of, of products. And there's actually quite a good movement already within Manitoba for for industry to uh, start focusing on some of these. Oh, I love it. Well, just before we kind of stop this conversation that I'm really actually enthralled in, this is, this is a lot more uh, than I was expecting. What are some end uses of this protein? Cause I like, I mean, obviously like we were saying, like I was saying before is the oil, we, we see that produced and sold around the world. What, what kind of, what do we have going for some of these protein? products. Okay. So as I say, uh, cruciferin and napin both have different properties that can make them useful in different food applications. So 
Napin is is what is composed mainly of albumin proteins, and so what those are is they actually have excellent solubility, um, and can so they can be used in transparent solutions, whether that's an energy drink. Um, they have good foaming capability, um, and so they can be used in um, protein beverages or aerated desserts and or protein bars. So that would be. Say we were able to find and or develop and breed and understand the genetics to increase napin content, the extraction efficiency would only improve to be utilized in some of these protein beverages or bars. Um, whereas cruciferin, which does make up the majority in, in the seed, and actually um, there are, are groups in Manitoba starting to work on this now, they're, they're, cruciferin is composed of mainly globulin proteins. And these have potential use in, in gel formation, like in dressings or sauces, um, as, and also as a thickening and an ingredient binding agent. So these cruciferin extracts or isolates could be used in baked goods, again, protein bars or sauces and or meat substitutes. Um, and so just along those lines, Merit Functional Foods is right now building a, a plant protein production facility where some of these products are gonna be produced. Outstanding. Dr. Rob Duncan, you are doing some cool work and uh, I'm jealous of your day to day. That sounds like a, a lot of fun to go in there and, and watch this kind of blossom, in, no pun intended, but pun intended, watch this blossom into something that gives back to the country. Amazing. Wonderful, thank you for your time, Jordan. Well. We're going to have you back because there's a lot more to, to go. I'm sure that we just scratched the surface. So appreciate your time greatly. Talk to you soon.